This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. You know, it's been some time since we put Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce to work here on the show. Of course, they're the two names so closely associated with the famous detective Sherlock Holmes and his able assistant, Dr. Watson. Now, Basil Rathbone was a South African-born English actor. He rose to prominence in the United Kingdom as a Shakespearean stage actor and went on to appear in more than 70 films, primarily costume dramas, swashbucklers, and occasionally horror films. Rathbone frequently portrayed suave villains, but his most famous role was heroic, that of Sherlock Holmes, in 14 Hollywood films made between 1939 and 1946 and in the radio series. Now, his later career included roles on Broadway, and he was much more than just an actor. Following his brother's death, which occurred in battle, Rathbone appears to have become unconcerned about the dangers of serving at the front. His extreme bravery may have been a form of guilt or need for vengeance. Listen to what he did. He persuaded his superiors to allow him to scout enemy positions during daylight rather than at night, as was the usual practice to minimize the chance of detection. Rathbone wore a special camouflage suit that resembled a tree with a wreath of freshly plucked foliage on his head, with, uh, and they put burnt cork applied with his hands to his face. Now, as a result of these highly dangerous daylight reconnaissance missions in September of 1918, he was awarded the Military Cross for Conspicuous Daring and Resource on Patrol. Now, let's hear another adventure with Sherlock Holmes with the episode entitled Murder in the Moonlight. This episode from the life of Sherlock Holmes will be transmitted to our men and women overseas by shortwave and through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And now let's keep our appointment with the good Dr. Watson. Good, good. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. Uh, come over here and join me with the fire. I didn't think it was cold enough for a fire tonight, Doctor. Oh, I suppose it isn't really, but there was one late, so I just couldn't resist putting a match to it. <laughs> Fire's a good accompaniment to storytelling anyway. Uh, yes, my boy. A fire and a glass of port. Uh, care to join me in one? Thanks, Doctor. So, uh, you're going to tell us a sea story tonight. Yes, Mr. Bartell. The whole adventure took place aboard a small steamer as it plowed through the stormy seas 
of the Indian Ocean. Uh, here's your glass, my boy. Thanks. And uh, what were you and the great Sherlock Holmes doing on the Indian Ocean, may we I ask? We were on our way to Calcutta to solve the case of the vanishing elephant of Parvati Pur. Oh, yes, the story you told us a few weeks ago. That's quite right, my boy. It's in the summer of 1894 that we left Liverpool aboard the steamship Lucifer. It wasn't a large ship, and as both the uh, Mediterranean and the Red Sea proved somewhat, shall we say, unfriendly, I may tell you the first part of the voyage was quite unpleasant. In fact, until we left Aden, I'd spent most of the time in my cabin. I'm not much of a sailor, you know. However, as we headed eastward towards Colombo, the weather cleared up a bit, and I came on desk and joined home. I remember on the second night out of Aden, we paced the decks together. The stars above us twinkled, the promise of a bright tomorrow. And the faint tinkle of a piano being played in the passenger lounge formed a perfect setting for an evening stroll. It only seems like yesterday. Holmes said. Watson, it's good to see you on your feet again. Yes, it's good to be on him, Holmes. It's been a miserable trip for me so far. The captain told me tonight that we can expect good weather between here and Calavati on our next port of call. I thought Colombo was the next stop. And where is Calavati, whatever you call it? Anyway, I never heard of the place. It's a tiny island in the Indian Ocean. It's a British protectorate. Those are the only facts I was able to glean from the encyclopedia and the oh, ship's did library. Did you ask the captain why we're stopping there? No, no, I didn't. Um, as we are traveling incognito, I thought it wiser not to ask too many questions. I find this incognito business something of a strain. Every time a steward calls me Mr. Hamish, I can't think who on earth he's talking uh, uh, to. Ah, whereas I find myself answering to Mr. Mycroft almost automatically. By the way, old chap... Now that you're going to mix with the ship's passengers, I suggest that you adopt a Scotch accent. It would seem more appropriate for a Mr. Hamish, and I don't want anyone aboard to suspect our true identity. Oh, I'll do my best, but I must say, Holmes, I think you're being unnecessarily mysterious. <laughs> Possibly I've been influenced by reading too many of your rather florid stories of our adventures together. My stories are not florid. They're all perfectly true. Oh, don't be angry with me, old chap. Don't be angry, please. By the way, uh, we'll... Uh, you'll be interested to know that I've... Uh, Unearthed a little mystery aboard this boat. I trust you to do that. Where is she? I mean, what is it? Oh, you observe that suite of cabins on the bridge deck above us? Yeah? What about them? Well, I've been watching them during uh, my nightly strolls for the past two weeks. The suite is occupied, and uh, yet the blinds are never raised. And I've never seen meals taken in there. I presume, therefore, that it must contain a private galley and a cook. I don't say anything mysterious about that. It's probably occupied by some wealthy invalid. Oh, possibly, possibly. Another interesting fact is that the occupants are not uh, entered on the ship's passenger list. It all sounds very mysterious. There's probably a perfectly simple explanation for it. In any case, you must save your energies for the problem that awaits us in India. You're Mr. Mycroft now. Remember that. I will, Mr. Hamish. Uh, Mr. Mycroft? Uh, yes, Mr. Hamish? Would you care to join me for a wee drop of brandy in the smoking room? <laughs> Mr. Hamish, I shall be delighted. <laughs> Excellent brandy. Excellent. Watson. Watson, you notice that rather garrulous gentleman over there in the corner? You mean the one at the table with the oriental-looking fellow? Yes, the talkative man is the ship's doctor, but I haven't seen the other gentleman before on this voyage. I wonder if he's an occupant of the mysterious suite on the bridge deck. Let's go over and talk to him, shall we? And remember the accent, Mr. Hamish. And so, Verda... When we landed at Colombo, I decided to take Mrs. Abbott for a moonlight rickshaw drive from the cinnamon gardens. Uh, 
Uh, did you gentlemen want to see me? Uh, if you'll excuse us, Dr. Harris, my friend Mr. Hamish and I were having a little argument, and we thought perhaps you might be able to settle it for An us. An argument? Oh, I love a good argument. Uh, sit down, gentlemen. This, uh, this is Mr. Verder. How do you do, gentlemen? Good evening, sir. My name is Hamish, and this is my friend, Mr. Mr. Mycroft. I'm so happy to meet you, gentlemen. Now, how do you know, Mr. Verder? Ah, now, gentlemen, uh, tell me what you're arguing about. Oh, well, Doctor, a good argument. Uh, you see, it, it wasn't exactly an argument. My friend, Mr. Hamish, insists that the Suez Canal was built by a Dutchman in 1870. I'm convinced that it was built by de Lesseps, a Frenchman, in 1869. We, uh, we thought you'd know. <laughs> you flatter me. I'm only a ship's doctor, not an historian. Ask Verdi. He probably knows. Uh, can you settle the question for us, sir? I can, my Mr. Mycroft. Uh, you are almost correct. The canal was opened in 1869 though its construction began ten years previously. De Lesseps, a French engineer, was in charge of the operation. There is a statue of him in Port Said Harbor, built to commemorate his skill and enterprise. Oh, much obliged to you, Mr. Vera. Uh, Hamish, I think that I win my bet. Aye, my cuff, I'm afraid you do, if you're sure of your facts, Mr. Vera. <laughs> uh, I'm sufficiently sure of them, Mr. Hamish to venture a small wager myself. No, no, no. I think I'll not make any more bets on the subject. Thank you. Uh, well, gentlemen, if you will excuse me, I shall return to my cabin now. Oh, don't go. No, 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 no don't go, sir. You'll make us feel as if we'd driven you away. Oh, not at all, Mr. Hamish. I enjoyed meeting you both, but I have some letters to write. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, he's, he's a charming person. Charming and extremely knowledgeable. Mm, bit of a bore, if you ask me. Uh, you two fellas enjoyed the trip? I'm just beginning to. It takes a little time to get my sea legs, you know. Uh, Dr. Harris, how long have you been on this ship? Four years. Uh, this is my 23rd trip east on the Lucifer. Uh -huh. Why? Well, uh, there's something that puzzles me on board this ship. I'm sure that you would explain it to me. And what is it? Well, the uh, suite of cabins on the bridge deck. Who occupies them? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? I don't know we would, and that's why my friend asked you. Well, I'll tell you. Though it's supposed to be a secret. But there'll be no harm in telling you now, for we're dropping anchor off the island of Cavarati in the morning. In that suite of rooms, in that suite of rooms, is the Rani of Cavarati herself. She has her own staff of servants and everything. What do you think of that? Oh, how very interesting. And is the Oriental gentleman who uh, left the table when we arrived part of our entourage? He is, sir. He's the sort of uh, prime minister of Cavarati. This whole trip of theirs is very hush-hush. Rani returning to her country... Afraid someone might make an attack on her life. Have to keep it all hush-hush. Tavarati is an island that's had a lot of trouble. <laughs> you seem to be remarkably well-informed about the place, sir. Huh? Yeah, I should be. I used to practice there in my younger days. Oh, really? How, how very interesting. Yes, I could tell you strange tales about the island. I remember... Oh, hello. See that fellow coming into the lounge? You mean the big man with the, the grey hair? Yes. That's Sir Christopher Wyatt. Owns all the tea plantations on Cavarati. He's a dull fella, but I'll call him over. Uh, Wyatt, come over and join us. Be careful. You'll choke your head off if you give him half a chance. Ah, draw up a chair, Wyatt. We were just, just talking about Cavarati. Seems to me that would be a good subject to keep away from. At least till after tomorrow, Harris. What do you mean? You know perfectly well what I mean. I should have thought that after your own experience on Cavarati, you would have learned a little discretion. You're talking like a schoolmaster, Wyatt. Why don't you sit down and have a drink and be friendly? Thank you, I prefer my own company. Compass ass. <laughs> you and Christopher don't seem on the best of terms, Doctor. I know too much about him. He's afraid of me. That's what he is. Hey, look at this girl coming into the room. Great scut. She's good looking. Judging by our oriental costume, she must be a member of the Rani's retinue. Yeah, she's coming to our table. Yes, my dear. What is it? 
Which of you gentlemen is Mr. Mycroft, please? I am. My mistress sends her compliments and asks that you will call on her in her suite. And who is your mistress, may I ask? Her Highness, the Rani of Cavarotti. Oh, I shall be delighted. Please tell the Rani that I shall pay my respects without delay. We will join her in a few minutes. Very well, Mr. Michael. You know, Holmes, this is pretty exciting. The girl just brought us the message. It was a stunning creature. Imagine what the Rani herself must be like. Oh, what an incurable romanticist you are, Watson. I suppose you picture the Rani clad in oriental splendor, reclining like an odalisk on silken cushions. Oh, no, no, there's no need to make fun of me, old boy. <laughs> huh? Here we are, Captain. Ah, oh, it is you, gentlemen. Follow me, please. Her Highness, the Rani of Cavaratti. All right, Regina, you can off it. Yes, Your Highness. Well, me lads, don't look so startled. Come in and sit down. Your Highness, I... Uh, What's the matter? What's the matter? Don't I fit into your picture of a Rani? What did you expect, this slant-eyed beauty with a veil and big hips? Well, I've got the big hips, all right. Uh, your Highness... Um, <laughs> oh, I never know. mind, Your Highness. Sit yourself down and talk free and easy-like. I may as well begin by telling you that I know who you both are. Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Oh, dear me, dear me. Oh, I've seen you in the good old days in London, you know. Uh, may I ask if our visit is purely a social one, or are you in need of uh, professional advice? Oh, a little of both, Mr. Holmes, a little of both. And we'll start off with being social. Roma. Ma'am Sahib. Champagne. Botachi, Ma'am Sahib. If you'll pardon my asking you, madam, but uh, uh, I've never seen you before, somewhere. <laughs> oh, that's a question I'm always having to answer. Yes, you probably have, Dr. Watson. You see, I was in the chorus at Daly Theatre in London for a, quite a few years until the Raja of Cavarotti decided I'd look better on his island than I did in front of the footlights. Uh, your husband, the Raja, is dead, isn't he? Yes, he, he was killed playing polo. Champagne, ma'am, say. Polo. Champagne from the sector. Acha. He doesn't speak English, so I'll get along with telling him my troubles. Mr. Holmes, somebody's trying to kill me. Kill you? It's good. Uh, may I ask what reason you have for saying that, madam? You may, Mr. Holmes. <clears throat> Before I left England, I had threatening letters warning me that if I ever went back to Cavarotti, I'd never get to the island alive. I got another letter in Port Side that said the same thing. You kept these letters, I trust? No, I didn't. I tore them up. I never did pay attention to letters that weren't signed. Well, that's a great pity, madam. Those letters might have been invaluable. Well, it's too late to think about that now, Dr. Watson. Here's what's on my mind. I landed Cavarotti in the morning, and if anyone's up to a bit of no good... Tonight's their last chance. You destroyed the threatening letters, madam, thereby indicating that you did not believe in the threats, and yet you now appear to feel that you are in danger. I wonder what made you change your mind. The ace of spades. Yes? I don't understand you, madam. In the last two days, every time I tell my fortune, I get the ace of spades. <laughs> now, you know what that means. Death. Oh, come now, madam. If you'll pardon my saying so, that's a very childish superstition. Well, the cards have never lied to me yet. Oh, you can laugh at it if you like, but I know. <laughs> well, you mind if I ask you a few questions? Anything you like, Mr. Holmes. Fire away. How long is it since you were in Cavarotti? Mm, about 18 months. We were in England when my husband died, and I couldn't face the idea of going back to that island alone. In three months ago, Verda... 
Oh, he's the chief minister of Cabaret. Yes, 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 madam. We met him for a moment in the lounge. Oh, well, Verda came over to England to persuade me it was my duty as the Ronnie to go back. I see. As far as you know, have you any enemies among the passengers on board the ship? No, oh, that's an odd one to answer, Mr. Elms. But I can tell you right here in my suite there's someone who doesn't like me. A girl, Raduna, the one that brought you my message. She was in love with a Roger herself. I know she hates me, even though she did stay with me in England after my husband died. Mm, how about Ferda, your minister? <laughs> oh, he's all right. My husband thought the world of him, and he's been wonderful to me. He came from Cavalati recently, you say, to persuade you to return there. That's right, Mr. Elms. Well, rumor seems to be all right after drinking that champagne, so it'll be safe for us to have some now. Champagne on log table? But that you may say. Oh, I've been burning with curiosity to know why you gave him a glass of champagne a few minutes ago, and yet we... <laughs> didn't have any. Well, surely that's obvious, Watson. Afuma is the official poison taster, isn't he, madam? That's right, Mr. Holmes. He tastes everything I eat or drink before I do. And if it doesn't affect him, then I know it's safe. Goethe brought him over to England when he came to fetch me. On the island of Cavarotti, poisoning's quite an hobby, you know. There were uh, two people in the smoking room tonight who seem to know quite a lot about your island. The ship's doctor, a rather garrulous gentleman by the name of Harris, and Sir Christopher Wyatt who owns tea plantations on the island. Do you know either of them, madam? I should say I do, both of them. Dr. Harris isn't any good. He was on the island for a bit, but he got into some kind of trouble, and my husband had him thrown out. Mm, and how about Sir Christopher Wyatt? Oh, Chris is all right. I saw quite a bit of him in London after my husband's death. <laughs> As a matter of fact, well, if I weren't going back to Cabarotti, I, I don't think he'd be on the boat at all. He hasn't been there for over five years. Ever since he had aroused my husband over the wages he paid the native labor. It seemed to me that several people aboard this boat have a personal interest in the island of Cavarati. Interests that might uh, be influenced by your death. That's what I was going to say, madam. I think we should uh, keep an eye on you. Oh, that's just what I was hoping you'd say, doctor. You see, I'm giving a bit of a supper party tonight. All the people we've been talking about have been invited. And I thought, well, I thought if you two were to be here, perhaps you'd be on the lookout for any, any funny business. How about it? Well, of course we'll come, won't we, Holmes? I think it might be a good idea. Though I would suggest that we retain our incognitos as Mr. Hamish and uh, Mr. Mycroft. Well, whatever you say, Mr. Holmes. And now, let's have that champagne. You know, Holmes... I remember the Raleigh when she was in the chorus at Daly's. She looked stunning in tights. There was one night I... Yes, no, I'm old chap, we... don't mind. At what? the moment, there's a question I want to ask you. Oh, sir? Is your medical bag fully equipped with all the antidotes to poison? Poison? That's ridiculous. How could the Raleigh be poisoned when she has a poison taster? My dear Watson, you mustn't... Hey, what the blazes is Come on, Watson. That's why I came from the companionway. There are two figures struggling by the rail there. Good heaven! One of them has pushed the other down the companionway. Good Lord. The skull smashed in. I'm afraid what that he... It? What's happened? Sir Christopher Wyatt. What are you doing here? I was taking a stroll. I heard a yell from this direction and came there as fast as I could. Great Scott. The fellow's bleeding badly. We must get the ship's doctor. That's time. hardly necessary, I fear, Sir Christopher. What do you mean? In the first place, this man is dead. In the second place... He is the ship's doctor.
We'll hear the rest of Dr. Watson's story in just a second, so I'm just going to ask you to do one thing for me. Well, I should say for yourself. Tomorrow night, if you're having meat or any meat dish for dinner, why not open up a bottle of Petri California Burgundy? That wonderful, rich, red Petri Burgundy will turn your dinner into a real feast. You see if it doesn't. Because there's nothing like a good wine with good food. And I know your family gets good food, and I know that Petri Burgundy is a good wine. In fact, it's a perfect mealtime wine. Try it and see. And now, Dr. Watson, tell us what happened next. You said you found the ship's doctor dead at the foot of the companionway? Yes, Mr. Bartell. His neck had been broken instantly. Imagine there was a good deal of excitement aboard. No, my boy. As a matter of fact, there wasn't. We managed to get the body back to its cabin without attracting attention. Holmes, after revealing his true identity, was able to persuade the captain to hush up the killing until after the Raleigh's party had taken place. Oh, he didn't want to scare the murderer, I guess. What happened next, Doctor? Holmes and I returned to our cabin to dress for the party. Holmes, I remember, was in a state of suppressed excitement. He spoke quietly and deliberately. Watson, surely it's obvious why the Doctor was murdered? Oh, it isn't obvious to me. Elementary, my dear fellow. You're planning a subtle murder by poison. How wise to remove the one man who might save the victim's life, a doctor. Oh, you keep harping on poisoning. It seems to me that to be the last way a murder would try to dispose of the Rani. Everything she touches is first tested by the poison tester. Exactly. That's why I call it a subtle murder attempt. Didn't you notice the physical attributes of Prumer, the poison tester? Uh, which in particular? Huh? His unusually glossy hair, his remarkably clear complexion, his plump figure. Look here. Just tell me one thing, will you? What's that? I presume that in your medical bag you have a supply of magnesia. Naturally. Do you also have hydrated ferric oxide? Yes, I do. Splendid. Then to be off to the party. Oh, other things to take to a party, I must That's say. true, my dear fellow, but I'm afraid that this party may not prove as convivial as the Rani thinks. Nearly one in the morning. Everything seems to be going splendidly. It seems to be, Watson, but keep your eyes on the Rani. Yes, I have been. The poison taste has tested everything that passed her lips. Uh, we Duck and Doris to you, Sir Christopher. Uh, you having a good time? Yes, indeed. Thank you, Mr. Hamish. How about you, Mr. Mycroft? Oh, the Rani's a perfect hostess. Who could help having a good time? I don't think that girl, Regina, should be here, though. I don't want to be pompous, but after all, she's only a glorified servant. Oh, possibly the laws of etiquette are not so strict in Cavarati ca- uh, <coughs> as they are in London, Sir Christopher. Oh, perhaps you're right. But I don't trust the girl. <coughs> Something shifty about her. I've told the Rani more than once. Oh, well, I suppose it's none of my business. I think I'll try and persuade the Rani to sing one of her old songs. Mm. He doesn't trust the Duna, and I don't trust him. I don't think it was an accident that we found him near the body of Dr. Harris. Here comes Vera. I trust you gentlemen are enjoying yourself. Very much, Mr. Vera, thank you. I imagine you must be excited at the prospect of returning to Calabati. I am, Mr. Mycroft. Though I only left it three months ago, it has seemed more like three years. Do you can what time we'll arrive there? I am told that we shall be there in five hours, Mr. Hammond. Oh, look, look, look. The Rana's at the piano. She must be going to give us a tune. <laughs> yes. Let's move a little closer, shall we? Chris here has asked me to sing something. Yeah, my voice isn't what it used to be, and don't all know it. But me spirit's the same, and that's enough to put a number over. So, old tight boys, here we go. My sweet hop's the man in the moon. I'm going to marry him soon. Two would fill me with bliss just to give him one kiss. But I know that a dozen I never would miss. 
I'll go up in a great big... Oh. Great Scott, she... she... Quit watching. Your medical bag. I'll lock the door. Right, your Holmes. Bring some water, please. Help me. Oh, please. Help me. Don't be frightened, madam. I'll take care of you. There. Give me water. Oh, such pain. I... All the symptoms of arsenic poisoning. Now I know why Holmes asked me for helium and magnesia and phenic oxide. Do something for me, doctor. I'm dying. Don't worry, Your Highness. You're not going to die. Going to live, Holmes. Ah, oh, gracious me, I'm tired. Just touch and go there for a while, huh? Well done, Watson, old chap. Well done. Now that she's out of danger, why can't we all go back to our cabins? It's nearly dawn and we've been locked in here since one o'clock. You've no right to do this, you know. Possibly not, Sir Christopher, but there's a murderer in this cabin and I don't intend to let him escape. Mr. Holmes, what happened? How could I have been poisoned when Fruma tasted everything first? Why wasn't he poisoned? For a very simple reason, Your Highness. The murderer has been conditioning Froma for over a year. What do you mean? He's been feeding him gradually increasing doses of arsenic until he has finally become immune to the poison. Great Scott, I never thought of that. Froma's glossy hair, his complexion, and stout figure are all typical of a person who consumes arsenic regularly. But who could have done it? Only one person had the opportunity. Well, tell us who that person is. No, not you, Sir Christopher, not you. For you haven't been on the island for years, whereas Froma returned from Caravati for three months ago. Raduna has also been in London with her mistress for the past 18 months, remember? The answer is obvious. You did it, Verda. You brought the taster over when you came to fetch me. You'd prepared him for the year beforehand. Of course I did. No white runner will ever rule over Cavaratti. And you murdered Dr. Harris. Equally true. Mr. Holmes, give me the key to the door, please. Oh, oh no. What? Do not come near me. Oh. Please throw it on the floor. Do not hesitate. You see this revolver? I should have no compunction in using it, I assure you. How do you expect to escape, Yoda? The key, please. Thank you. You'll never get away with this murder, you devil. But I shall. We are now in the harbor of Cavarati. I shall swim ashore and arrange your welcome, my dear Rane. Turn your backs, please. Turn them. Thank you. Goodbye. He's gone. Come on, Watson. After him. You, you have your revolver, Watson? Yes, but I didn't get a chance to draw it. He had me covered. I'll draw it now, old fellow. Aim for a leg or an arm and don't hesitate to shoot. There he is, up on the lifeboat. He's climbing up on the rail. Where is he? Where did he go? Up there on the rail above us, madam. He's going to dive. Give me that revolver, Dr. Watson. Quick, that's it. Come down off there, Verder. Oh, I Keep out of my affairs. There he goes. He's dived. Ah! Madam, you shot to kill. Of course I did, Mr. Holmes. Remember that we're now in Cavarotti waters. And that I, though I may not look like it at the moment, I am still the Ronnie of Cavarotti. <laughs>
Say, that that was a swell story, Doctor. It had a lot of color and quite a bit of action. <laughs> color and a bit of action? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you liked it, my boy. Oh, I did. Say, you know, that's not a bad idea. I mean, uh, having someone taste everything before you eat it. Oh, it's a very old idea, very old. Very common, too, years ago. You know the kind of job I'd like? No, what's, uh, what's that? I'd like to be the official taster for the Petri family. Boy, just think of all the Petri wine I'd get to taste. Petri to the right of me, Petri to the left of me. What a life. What wine? Yeah, I wouldn't mind having that job myself. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> the Petri family, you know, really knows how to make good wine. They've been making wine for generations. And because they've always owned and operated their own business ever since it was started way back in the 1800s, well, the Petri family has sure piled up plenty of skill and experience. Yes, they've been handing down in the family from father to son, from father to son, the fine art of turning luscious grapes into delicious wine. That's why you can't go wrong with any Petri wine. It must be good. Because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, uh, Doctor, what new story do you have lined up for us next well, week? Next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you an adventure that Sherlock Holmes and I had many years ago. It concerns a series of bonfires, an underground cellar full of gunpowder, and a strange death on the rooftops of London. <laughs> Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Adventure of the Mazarin Stone. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studio. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for The Whistler next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for The Whistler and the episode entitled 8 to 12. The Signal Oil Program, The Whistler. is your signal for the signal oil program, The Whistler. I am The Whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. Yes, friends, it's time for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler. Rated by independent research, the most popular West Coast program. 
In gasoline, you know, it takes extra quality to go farther. And signal is the famous go-farther gasoline. So look for the signal circle sign in yellow and black that identifies signal service stations from Canada to Mexico. And now the Whistler's strange story. Eight to twelve. At three o'clock that afternoon, Danny Bryan had been riding high. The top crime reporter in San Francisco. With a nice apartment on Russian Hill. Two hundred a week from the Express. And a lot more on the side. At four o'clock, he was nobody. Just another newspaper man out of a job. He'd walked into the club nocturne just after dinner, decided he might as well give it to Teddy right from the shoulder. He'd know about it sooner or later anyway. By nine, he'd had four martinis. Wasn't caring too much what he said, one way or another. <laughs> a job? Well, I'm still a reporter, baby. Uh, Brother Graves doesn't like my work. There are plenty of others who do. Graves is an important guy. They'll all listen to oh, he's him. He's a stuffed shirt. I helped put him where he is, and he knows. Oh, wait a minute, Little Napoleon, they call him down there. <laughs> I'd like to wring his scrawny neck. Danny. Hello, Danny. Huh? Oh, Stan, old boy. <laughs> Teddy, darling, this is Stan McIntosh, one of my erstwhile colleagues. Teddy Eldridge is Stan. Hello, Sit down. Let's talk over old times on the Express. I only got a minute. Oh? What's on your mind? Uh, uh what about, uh... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Teddy knows the story. Oh, I see. Uh, just wanted to tell you, Graves called us all into the office this afternoon. You want to know what he said? I got a rough idea. <laughs> he said you were taking hush-up dough from the dame in that murder case across town. Said you put the bite on her. That's why you got canned. Oh, anything else? Told us he was going to make an example of you. That's all. <sighs> Self-righteous little jerk, I could kill him. Danny. Sure, I could throttle him with my bare hands right now. Now, take it easy, Danny. You better go home and sleep Oh, it shut up. I don't care who knows. Doesn't matter what you think. Keep it to yourself. I tell you, I could kill him. Well, does that shock you, Stan, huh? I could snuff him out right now like that. Tell that to the boys in the city room. And tell them not to worry about Danny Bryan. There are plenty of other jobs, Stan. Plenty of jobs. <laughs> But there aren't plenty of jobs either, Danny. Three other papers in town. And you can tell by the way the city editors look across the desk at you that Martin Graves has been there first. That though it's all very polite and friendly, they're part of a closed corporation. And if Graves has given the word, the answer is no. By the following Saturday night, you've afraid that he's licked you. Though you won't admit it to anyone. Not even to Teddy. Danny. Yeah? Oh, Danny, I've got good news. Mr. Merrill called me in this afternoon, raised me to a hundred and a quarter. Say, that's great. Oh, it's more than they've ever paid for a girl singer. And, Danny, I just want you to know if, well, if you need any money... Now, wait a minute. What are you talking about? Well, since you're not working, Listen, I... baby, get this through your head. I'm not out of a job. I'm taking a rest, that's all. When I want a job, I'll get one. Like that. Oh, don't try and kid me, Danny. I know how it is. I, uh, I want you to remember I'll do anything for you, Danny. Anything. Sure, baby, I know that. But just forget about the job business, will you? I'm not worrying. Why should... Uh, excuse me. Oh, yeah? Well, what is it, Mike? There's a telephone call for you. 
Mr. Graves. He says it's important. Graves? <laughs> Thanks, Mike. You see, Teddy? Nothing to it, huh? Just like that. Yes, Mr. Graves? Right. Yeah, what is it? I want to talk to you about your job. Well, where are you? My apartment. Been laid up for the cold. You come up tonight? When? Well, what time is it now? My clock's haywire up here. Don't know whether it's night or day. Oh, wait a minute. It's, uh, uh, 9.15. Oh, what about 10? Well, I don't know. I'll, I'll think it over. You'd better decide tonight. I may feel different tomorrow. Well, then, he finally came around. But it's a matter of pride now, isn't it? You deliberately stay at the club for another hour, knowing it won't hurt to let Graves know you're taking your time. It's 10.30 when you walk up to the door of his apartment. Drop him a cordial nod as he lets you in and shows you to a chair and pours a drink. He wasn't kidding about the cold. The air is strong with eucalyptus oil. He's wearing a wool robe, a heavy towel around his neck. Five minutes later, he gets to the point. Well, Danny, there's no use kidding each other. You're a great reporter. We need you on the express. Oh, thanks. You want to come back? I've made up my mind. A lot of other jobs, you know. Not in San Francisco. Why not? You ought to know. You've been to the Chronicle, Examiner of the News. <laughs> they all turned you down. Well, there are other towns. <clears throat> ah, but you ought to stay here. You belong here. Well, maybe. I don't want to go into what you did, Danny. I'm willing to forget it. You are. I think you learned a lesson. Hey, look. Let's not even talk about that, huh? All right. You want to come back? Okay, Chief. When? You report Monday morning to Stan McIntosh. McIntosh? What do you mean? You're a rewrite man now. Rewrite? Who do you think you're talking to? You heard what I said. Rewrite? Why, you two-bit Napoleon. You think you can run me like a monkey on a string? Wait a bit of bright. Well, you picked the wrong guy, Graves. You can pull the strings, only I don't jump. Take your head off. Oh, he wanted to tell you all. Let's go and be bright. Oh, hit me, will you? Oh, you want to play rough, do you? Okay, Napoleon, don't go away from me. Right. Let's go, Brian. Graves, I'll kill you. You forget where you are. Everything stops. There's nothing inside you but a blind red rage. The ends of the towel around his neck tight in your hand. It's quiet now, Danny. No sound but the blood pounding in your head. And then things begin to get clearer. The room comes into focus again. A chair overturned, the desk swept clean, a vase of flowers, the clock, the statuette smashed on the floor. And on the floor, too, is Martin Graves lying very still. You don't have to look any closer, Danny. As a crime reporter, you've seen murdered men before. Lots of them. You sit down, let your head clear a little. Look at your watch. 
10.45. You know it's hopeless, Danny. That you'd have a better chance of getting out of this one if you'd murdered Martin Graves in the middle of the Union Square at high noon. A motive. The opportunity. Everything there. All ready for the police. You find yourself thinking of Teddy. Of what you're going to tell her. And then... You think of something else. With the prologue of 8 to 12, the Signal Oil Company brings you another strange tale by The Whistler. Standing there over the body of Martin Gray. You know, there's only one thing that can save you. An alibi, Danny. You've got to have a sworn statement from Teddy Eldridge that you couldn't have been up here in Gray's apartment. That you were with her at the club nocturne all evening. Just as always, from 8 to 12. You get up, start for the phone, and then stop. Remembering the switchboard operator. Then as you turn... You hesitate. Decide to answer. Put your handkerchief over the mouthpiece. Lower your voice. The cold. Martin Graves had a bad cold. Yes? Martin? Yes? This is Stark at the city desk. How did you come out with Danny Bryant? Oh, he, uh, he hasn't shown up. Uh, looks like he might not come at all. Uh, just as well. You'd have a hard time making him eat crow. <laughs> going to bed. Oh, better not bother you, then. Plenty of rest, you know. Keep warm. Maybe a hot potty. That's right. Good night, Martin. Good night. Yes, Danny. There's only one way out. To somehow leave the apartment without being seen. Find Teddy and get the questions answered before they're asked. You take care of your fingerprints. Then walk to the door. Open it. Ah. The hall's vacant. You step out quietly, close the door behind you, and tiptoe down to the back stairway. On the main floor, you walk up to the side door opening onto the alley. Ah, it's locked. You've got to leave by the main entrance now. Knowing if anyone sees you here, you might as well drive up to headquarters and confess. The lobby is empty. You hurry across it, out the main door. Well, Mr. Bryan. Huh? Oh. You remember me. Name's Bleeker. <laughs> Horace Bleeker. Met you a while ago through Mr. Graves. I live in the same apartment house. <laughs> is something wrong? Oh, no, no. Nothing's wrong. You, uh, well, you, you startled me. Oh, sorry. I'm on my way to the airport, leaving tonight for Los Angeles. Yeah, seems the streets are full of taxis until you really want one. You were waiting for a taxi? Uh, that's right. 
Look, let me give you a lift. I have my car. Oh, no, no, I, I wouldn't think of putting you... Oh, in. not at all. Come on. I, I insist. That's all. I insist. <laughs> You help Bleeker into your car. Start south across Market Street. Gripping the wheel hard to keep from shaking. Tense, nervous, a sick, tight feeling in your stomach. You know you've got to kill Bleeker, too. There's no other way. By the time you hit the fringe of the city, you know how it's going to happen and where. But uh, there's really no hurry, Mr. Bryan. My plane doesn't leave till midnight, and it's only uh, 11. Sure, I know. I, uh, well, I just wanted to give you a little leeway. And another thing, your gasoline gauge looks almost empty. Uh, there's a signal oil station at the next corner. Perhaps we'd better stop. No, no, not now. I can't stop now. You better slow down. Speed limit 25. I just saw the sign. Look out! I didn't see him. I didn't... Why, you you cut right in front of that car. Look, here comes the driver. Hey, you. What's the idea? Hang on. Hey, wait a minute. That's in my fender. Hey, Mr. You've got to stop. Forget it, Bleeker. But that's hit and run. You can't... I said forget it. It's like a nightmare, isn't it, Danny? You don't think anymore. You only feel. And above everything else, you know you and Bleeker must not be seen together now. He knows something's wrong. Out of the corner of your eye, you see him hunched in the seat like a frightened rabbit, ready to jump out if you slow down. Still city. Oh, but that's not the way to... I said I'd get you to the airport, didn't I? But, uh, we'll what? take Skyline Boulevard, drop down to the airport at Millbrae. I, uh... It's a little longer that way, but faster. But I, I... See, uh, there's no traffic. At 11.30, you turn onto the Skyline Boulevard. Dark and deserted now, winding through the trees and the crest of the hills overlooking the bay. And a moment later, you make up your mind. Hold your breath. Pull over onto the shoulder of the road near an old water tower. What? Why are you stopping here? Ah, uh, that fender I banged up, it's scraping on the wheel. You pick up a rock from the edge of the highway. Pause a moment. Then... Uh, uh Bleeker? Yes? Give me a hand here, will you? matter now. Take a look down there. Huh? Where? Why, well, I don't see anything. You carry his body to the foot of the embankment. Drop it in a depression behind some bushes. As you climb back up to the road, the shale slides down in a rush, covering it completely. That ought to do it. Come on. Oh, what? 
It won't start, Danny. You reach for the choke, and then your eye strikes the gas gauge, and you turn cold inside as you realize what's wrong. I'm out of gas. Ten minutes to twelve, Danny, and you're stuck next to the water tower, with Bleaker's body lying in the ditch ten feet away. Hedy will leave the club nocturne at 12.30. And unless you get that call through to her, the whole plan, the solid, life-saving 8 to 12 alibi is gone. You've got to flag a car, get some gasoline. But the Skyline Boulevard is almost deserted at this time of night. Then at last, at 12.15, a pair of lights round the bend in the distance, and a small coupe pulls up to a stop. trying to help him as he siphons a gallon of gas out of his tank. 12.30. Teddy might be gone now. It seems a thousand years before he finally finishes up. Uh, well, here you are, pal. That ought to get you into the station anyway. Oh, I'm sure it will. Thanks a lot. Oh, here, here. Take one of my cards. Look me up sometime. I think I better be going now. I'm in a hurry. Oh, uh, just a minute. Oh, what's the matter? Uh, the gas. <laughs> I think uh, 50 cents ought to do it. Fair enough, huh? Here, take my card. Before he's had time to get back in his car, you're pulling away from the spot. The accelerator down to the floor, hoping you'll never have the bad luck to run into him again. Somewhere along the way, you find you're still holding on to his business card, and you toss it out the window. Yes, Danny. The only thing that counts now is Teddy... And ten minutes later, you're on the phone, praying she hasn't left the club. Hello? Oh, uh, Teddy? Danny, where are you? Never mind. Listen, listen, honey. Is, is Mike still there? Well, I, I think so. You've got to help me. Mike, too, if you think we can trust him. Only you've got to be sure. Danny, what's the matter? I, I can't tell you now. Just get this. You've got to swear I was at the nocturne from eight to twelve, that I didn't leave. Danny, Danny what if... You said you'd do anything for me, didn't you? You meant that, Teddy. Anything, well, then don't ask questions. Just do as I say. All right, Danny. I'll do it. Just as you say. Well, Danny, somehow the worst is over. The 8 to 12 is going to be the answer. And you know Teddy will make it solid. You weren't at Graves' apartment. You never saw Bleecker. And that man on the highway couldn't have possibly seen enough of you in the darkness to identify you. You stay home all day Sunday, knowing it will be smart to keep away from Teddy now. You spend the morning and the afternoon listening to news reports, waiting, waiting. (laughs) 
but it's not until 10 o'clock Monday morning that the phone rings. It's your old friend Neil of Homicide asking you to uh, drop in at headquarters. Hello, Neil. Morning, Danny. What's this all about? Why are you... Teddy, Mike, what are you doing here? We can skip the act, Danny. You must have seen the papers on the way here. Oh, you mean Graves. I mean Graves. Oh, I didn't like the guy. Does that mean I killed him? According to Stan McIntosh, you were a hot prospect a few nights ago. Oh, sure, a guy has a few drinks, he's sore, but... But you didn't do it, huh? Oh, I didn't do it. Uh, Mike and Teddy have you covered from 8 to 12 on the night it happened. Right? Yeah. I didn't put my nose out of the club until midnight. That's the truth, Mr. Neal. Mike and I were with him all the time. It's just like I told you, Lieutenant. He was right there in the corner booth all the time. We've been through that once. Let's leave it there. Well, what about it, Neil? Well, I guess there's no argument about that, Danny. You're at the club nocturne from 8 to 12. <laughs> your friend Neil of the Homicide Division leans back in his chair and studies the three of you. Teddy and Mike really came through, insisted you couldn't have killed Graves because you weren't out of their sight from 8 until 12. And you know only too well that Graves died at 10.30. So you put it over, Danny. It uh, took two murders instead of one, but your alibi is airtight. Bleaker. The only man who saw you come out of Graves' apartment house is lying dead outside of town by the old water tower. You haven't a thing to fear, Danny. Not a thing. You know, this sort of thing isn't too easy when you're dealing with old friends. You're right, Neil. But since you've just heard that I couldn't have had anything to do with the murder, well, let's forget all about it, huh? I wish I could, Danny. Only I can't figure you're in the clear. Now, you said you left the club at 12. Yes? But I told you, Mr. Neal. Mike and I were with him right up till then. I heard you, Miss Eldridge. I'm sorry it doesn't mean anything. You see, we've placed the time of the murder at 12.15. Huh? 12.15? On the nose. During the struggle, an electric clock on Graves' desk was disconnected. Oh, wait a minute. You're wrong. Go on, Danny. What's wrong? Everything's wrong, isn't it, Danny? They've made a terrible mistake. What time is it now? My clock's haywire up here. I don't know whether it's night or day. Don't sit there with your mouth hanging open, Danny. You kept that appointment with him, didn't you? Only at 12.15 and you killed him. No, no, no wait a minute. I, I did keep the appointment, but not at 12.15. I went up there a little after 10. I left at 10.30. You expect me to swallow that? Who saw you leave? Who saw you come out of that apartment? <laughs> You're in a corner now, gulping as Neil pounds at you. Who can you turn to now, Danny? Who can prove you weren't in that apartment at 12.15? You'll remember me. James Bleeker. Horace Bleeker. He's dead, Danny. 
where you left him under two feet of shale on the Skyline Boulevard. Hey, wait a minute, mister. You bashed in my fender. Lost in the heart of the city, in the maze of streets south of Market. I'm waiting, Danny. Let me think. There was one more, another guy. What are you talking about? Yeah, another guy. I didn't get his name, but... card. I threw it away. When you get to the point, where were you at 12.15? Did you hear what I said? Yeah. Yeah, I heard you. I, uh, I guess I haven't got the answer. Whistle, be your signal for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler, each Monday at 9. Brought to you by the Signal Oil Company, marketers of Signal gasoline and motor oil and fine quality automotive accessories. Signal has asked me to remind you to get the most driving pleasure, drive at sensible speed, be courteous, and obey traffic regulations. It may save a life, possibly your own. Featured in tonight's story were Joseph Kearns and Doris Singleton. The Whistler was produced by George W. Allen, with story by Joel Malone and Harold Swanton. Music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. This is Marvin Miller speaking for the Signal Oil Company. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll be with me next week when I uncover more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.